welcome to this week's edition of the Casual Shooters Podcast, your premier podcast for the casual shooter. This week's episode is going to be a little bit different. Um, this isn't, uh, we're not going to be talking to any uh, world or national champions today, but we're going to be talking about some military history and past and, and where it's going to lead us in the future. As most of you know, I'm a former Marine sniper, and that's what I'm bringing on today, another former Marine sniper. So with that, join me in welcoming Mr. Patrick Garrison. How you doing, Patrick? Doing well, David. Thanks for having me on the show today. Uh, thanks for coming on. It's always a pleasure to talk to a, another fellow sniper, so I'm down yeah. with it. Absolutely. So go ahead and take a moment, if you would, and introduce yourself. Well, my name's Patrick Garrity. Uh, grew up on the central coast of California. Former Marine Scout sniper. Uh, got out in 2000 and since then has have worked as a firearms instructor, um, a technical advisor on films, bodyguard. Uh, and now I'm working as a compliance officer in the investment banking industry. So all over the map. <laughs> yeah, like a jack of all trades there. I like it. Yeah, master of none. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Um, so you said you have listened to a few episodes, so you know the tough questions are loaded right up front. Right, right, so, right. Yeah, so we're going to start with those. And the first one being, what's your favorite movie? Oh, um, favorite movie of all time. Uh, in the military genre would have to be Black Hawk Down. Um, mm. it's, that's probably the first film I saw where the director, the technical advisor, everyone involved really uh, made an effort to show things that weren't really shown in on films prior to that like the fog of war uh there's a scene in particular um if you're familiar with the actual event um uh one of the helicopters goes down uh there's people uh you know the, an army ranger unit is on the ground uh medics uh administering aid to one of the downed soldiers and in the scene of the movie you can hear the sand whipping around on the mic as the soldiers talking and calling for support calling the situation in and the gunshots in the background and the dust um you know it's it was a, a good description of the fog of war that i had never seen in a film before um and that that kind of got me with that film um there's quite a few that would be at the top of my list but that's that's that is the top okay and that's a pretty interesting thing that you plucked out of that movie because that reminds me, my favorite being Saving Private Ryan from the military genre where um, Tom, I can't think of a... <laughs> anyway, where he his, uh, got his bell rung with the explosion in the last scene with the tank. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the same kind of thing, you know, things are just... You know, he's kind of out of it, but things are happening and he's not really right there. Pretty yeah. Interesting. Yeah. They do a great job in some of these more realistic uh, military genre movies to 
show things like that. Um, I tried to show a few things of that nature in uh, one of the films I worked on was Shooter and uh, tried to show things like vapor trail and, you know, some of the, some of the techniques of camouflage that, um, you know, movies haven't really had the ability to show until special effects kind of came into play. All right. Let's come back to that. Um, sure. We'll, we'll spend more time on that. Cause that, that I definitely have some questions there. Um, but I want to get the, the initial questions out of the way and then we'll, we'll get there. Sure. Um, all right. So did you deploy much when you were in the Marines? Yeah, I, I uh, deployed twice, uh, both West okay. packs. And, uh, okay. so we, we deployed out of San Diego, went about as far as Africa and came back over a six month period. Okay. So <laughs> this question is going to be right up your alley then, because like me who spent, you know, I, I did a, um, a med float. So okay. same type of thing, just to the East. Mm -hmm. Um, favorite book. I'm sure you had to have read some books on deployment. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, I am a bit of a history buff. This is kind of a weird part of history, but, uh, uh going down together, uh, Bonnie and Clyde, the Bonnie and Clyde story. That was an interesting mm -hmm. one. Um, David McCullough's John Adams was really interesting to me because that was written from the perspective of John and Abigail Adams's letters back and forth to each other during the founding of this country. Uh, so I thought that was a real interesting perspective on that time period. Those are probably two, my two favorite. So we played the... a lot. Go ahead. Sorry. Uh, I, I was just going to add to that. We played a lot of video games and watched a lot of movies on shit. So it was uh, we, probably uh, a little more of that. Yeah, we watched uh, we watched a lot of movies. Um, but it, when I was on float, it was 1989. So there wasn't a whole lot for video games back then. Yeah, yeah. So it, so it was reading and watching movies. Um, mm -hmm. And there's a story I've got, but it'll have to be off air. Because there's no way... <laughs> that it would uh pass any type of censorship <laughs> so oh uh, <laughs> quite a few uh, quite a few deployment stories are like that the bonnie and clyde book is that written from the perspective of those two? Oh, that was a long time ago um i believe it was written from the perspective it was third person i don't think it was written from the perspective of the fbi agent either i think it was just third person on those two third and i don't uh, you know we're gonna i'm i'm not into superheroes you're into history so i would prefer to hear your answer to this question which is who's your favorite historical person oh these are some tough questions um <laughs> i so I don't know if it's historical. I think we could consider it him historical. Um, I believe Colin Powell was a great leader, uh, political mind as well. Um, read his autobiography. That was a that was a good one. Um, I mean, as a Marine Scout sniper, I have to say Carlos Hathcock. He was a pioneer. Um, 
those are probably my top ones there heroes okay. or iconic figures i mean uh you know i was i was always really interested in um those individuals that wrote about warfare like sun tzu that's so cliche but uh so much of what he wrote or so much of so much of what he taught is still applicable today um so that i guess that's a pretty influential figure yeah that's a long list <laughs> <laughs> um to choose do, from <laughs> yeah uh, oh sure you, you've literally got since the beginning of time yeah um, <laughs> now going back to colin powell now i'm i was um i was in during desert mm -hmm. storm and desert shield mm -hmm. so i was literally i was with second recon when they deployed but I stayed back because I had orders to go to Quantico as an instructor. Okay. So there was a gap there of about three weeks where I had no unit. I was just literally in a deserted barracks. But um, mm -hmm. I bring that up because I, I was in the corner of General Storman Norman Schwarzkopf. I, I kind of felt... and. And maybe I'm wrong because you read Powell's autobiography, but I almost felt that there was the whole, um, who was the, uh, when we were in Korea, who was the gentleman who wanted to invade China, but was stopped by Truman? Um, he's the guy who said, I will return to the Philippines. Um, oh, you know, who I'm talking about though, the general... Um um, shoot, I cannot think of his name. Anyway, I kind of felt like Colin Powell and Schwarzkopf had that same relationship where mm -hmm. I felt like Schwarzkopf wanted to be more aggressive, go all the way up further into Iraq. And Powell, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, <laughs> was throttling him back. But I don't know if that was also because I don't remember if that was because that's what the white house wanted you know the the politicians or if that was something colin powell did can you shed any light on that at all i would assume even even today and there has been for more than 100 years talk about the military industrial complex i, I mm -hmm. my, my assumption of that situation is you know why uh why expend all of the efforts to go through bringing troops to a country uh, to do what we were going to do there and have it be over so quickly. That doesn't profit anybody. Um, so I'm not saying I think Colin Powell was uh, a puppet to that, that industry uh, in trying to prolong that, but I think when in regards to the Middle East, especially if you look at some of our plans, um, some of our, you know, foreign policy in regards to some of those countries that we went into, those were those could have been very quick um, engagements that turned out to be very long, drawn out engagements, and I think uh, Colin Powell is just subject to being one of the generals at the time that that was going on and uh 
you know, probably tried to influence his superiors or, you know, the president at the time, you know, what he wanted. But when you get, I think when, when you're a general and you get to that level, the joint chiefs are, you know, a four star and above, um, I think you kind of play more of the political game rather than the s s strategy game or the tactics game. Sorry to use some chess terms there. All right. So That's, I'm going to come I'm going to come back to that then because okay. um, I would like to get your insight. And we'll have a little discussion about Iraq in 1991 and what we didn't do versus Iraq in 2004 and what we did do. Sure. You're speaking my language. I'm a international relations graduate. I studied. Uh, okay. You know, this is all my language here. <laughs> okay. Well, we're going to, we're going to, once we get done with all this stuff and we get into your Marine Corps stuff, then we'll, we'll have that discussion. Cause I think there's, I think things would have gone completely different and would, would have been different had we done some different things, but mm. we'll get, we'll get there differently. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> all right. So, uh, your, the next question is your favorite gun and your favorite caliber. And they don't have to be married together. Just because, let's say, your favorite gun is a Barrett M82A1. Doesn't mean your <laughs> <What>? favorite... <laughs> right mean off the bat. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't mean your favorite caliber has to be a 50 cal Ralphus round. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you, you kind of gave it away there. Uh, but... <laughs> okay. Surprise. Uh, the M82A1A Sasser was... Uh, yeah. So my team leader was the 50 cal gunner of our platoon. Uh, my first cycle and my second cycle, I was, uh, I carried the 50 cal, you know, mission specific, obviously, uh, right. loved, loved it, loved the fact that you could shoot that large of a caliber, uh, scoped rifle, semi-automatic, change the magazines, just like you could an AR, I mean, not just like you could, obviously you're in the prone or, or whatever position you're in a supported position, but, uh, I, yeah, I, I loved that, that, that weapon system when they, when Barrett came, came out with, what was it? The 417, um, the, the military version was the 417 and that was semi-automatic. I think the civilian version was single shot um you know not magazine fed or anything i thought that was a much better caliber and i'm not uh the whiz about calibers but i i believe the ballistic coefficient on the 417 was much better than the 50 cal and could reach out at those further distances with a much more stable flight um if we had if we had that version in when we were in that would have been a lot more fun i think yeah, I, I think that's the 416 Shytac is the caliber. And yes, the ballistic coefficient on that is way better. Oh, maybe maybe I'm confusing them here. It's been a while. But, maybe maybe it was the 408 that was the Barrett. Is is the Shytac the Cheyenne Tactical? That's a that's a 416. Oh, no, you know what? I think I got it backwards. 416 Barrett. You got it. Yeah, yeah. The Shytac's the 408, right? Yeah, the Shytac's the 408. Yeah. Yes, the we, 416 is way better ballistic. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Lots, much more slippery. We use the Shytac also in the movie Shooter, so I'm a little familiar with that one. Okay. 
Um, caliber, yeah, that would have to that would have to be the four sixteen. If we if 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 I could get my if I could ever get behind um, the bear at four sixteen, I think it'd be a fun day. Uh, oh, for sure, it'd be an expensive day too. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> that's not a cheap round. Yeah, yeah. This is why I haven't gotten into competition shooting. It's uh, pretty expensive. Yeah, yeah, I started to get back into rifle competition. Long gun. Yeah. Ooh, yeah, that is not cheap. Yeah. So then I went to pistol instead. <laughs> Much cheaper. Yeah, and you can you can reload a little easier with pistol. Um, yeah, it's yeah. a little difficult with the long gun. <laughs> yeah, you can be off a little bit with pistol and be all right. You can't be off a little bit with rifle when you're reloading. Yeah. Makes for a bad day. Yeah, exactly. Well, and, and it just, you know, training-wise, it takes a lot of those rounds during training to, to get prepped for those competitions. But uh, fun stuff. Now, what was the fifth one I try to make, the fifth question I try to make a little bit more personal to the guest. So for you, what was your favorite moment in the Marine Corps? It could be a deployment. It could be a station. It could be whatever. It could be mm. in the sand pit. <laughs> There's so many memories. I mean, how do I choose? Uh, the most impactful memory I have was setting foot in my first Middle Eastern country, which was which 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 was Bahrain, Bahrain, and the way we did it in our platoon. You know, everybody got off and went to the what was it the USO and uh you know went to the place places close to the ship well our our platoon we went off in twos and threes and went off into town and you know t talked to the you know while we're walking and shopping local shop owners would pull us into their shops and uh pour some hot tea and we'd have conversations but my first you know getting off the pier and walking into town and and just that culture shock. It was my first experience with culture shock being like, I'm the only person here that does not look like everyone else here um, was, was uh, a pretty profound experience for me. I mean, I, I grew up in an area of California where um, it's mostly Hispanic. So I'm not unfamiliar with being a minority in a situation, but that was uh, definitely a, an eye opener for me. Um, Probably the most fun experience was the pig pond um, on Camp Pendleton. Are you familiar with the pig pond? No, but if you say the pig pond, I already know. I already have an idea what you're talking about. So yeah, uh, on Camp on Camp Pendleton at the top of Recon Ridge, one of the most iconic uh, hills on Pendleton. Um, there's a, a, a year-round pond, uh, and that's where you go to break in your ghillie suit once you made your ghillie suit. You and go. you you go there with the entire platoon and you have what's called a bull in the ring in the pig pond where oh, okay. it's it's a every man for himself royal rumble in about chest deep mud muddy water and uh you're fighting and you're you know you have to get thrown out of the pig pond in order to be eliminated and last person standing wins and uh, usually, oh, and then after that, you low crawl and roll down Recon Ridge to get that muddy ghillie suit now as dirty and as earthy as you possibly can. Uh, that was that was 
those were some good memories. <laughs> okay, um, so with your bull in the ring now, what is considered being thrown out? Just touching outside of the pond, or do you have to be completely outside of the pond? Well, yeah, you have to be outside of the pond, you know, uh, and, and there's a lot of teamwork involved. And then usually whoever you're utilizing teamwork with becomes your adversary at the end. So it's uh, some sneaky tactics going on and it's, it's just good. Uh, it's a good, 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 dirty fun. <laughs> uh, I can see some low bo blows going on underneath that muddy water. Yeah, yeah, it's a uh, it's interesting. But then you get back and you hose off your ghillie suit, and it's torn in some places, so you know where you need to reinforce it. And maybe you didn't do a good of good of a job tying in the burlap, and so you need to tie in a little extra. And, and then your ghillie suit's ready; it's all stanky and and somewhat muddy, and ready 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 for missions. Nice. Yeah, as soon as you use the word pig and knowing your background, I was like, okay, I know where this is going. Yeah, I don't know if your listeners understand our our language, but uh, a pig is a professionally instructed gunman. And when you graduate scout sniper school, no longer with us, um, you become a hog, a hunter of gunmen. So all of the instructors, all of the 8541s or 0317s, uh, refer to you as a pig until you become one of them. Exactly. Now, <clears throat> and that should probably take us back to the M82A1A when you said Sasser. Mm -hmm. So we called the Barrett the Sasser, which is a special application scoped rifle mm -hmm. because it's it's not a sniper rifle. Um, right. I did the mobile training team at Quantico for all of the division all three division snipers, they came to Quantico and I held a, it was really weird. It wasn't a mobile training team, even though that's what they called it. Because normally with the mobile training team, you leave where you're at and travel around and train people. In this case, they felt it was easier since we had the weaponry, we had the ammo, we had everything we needed. Everybody came to us, but I, it was funny. I just saw Ronnie Barrett at SHOT Show and shook his hand, and I'm like, look, I know you don't remember me, because we only met once, it was the early 90s, you know, explained all of that, so we had a great little flashback together, but, um, you know, they only guaranteed 2.2 minutes of angle accuracy from the factory with those, mm -hmm. so for those people listening, that's why it's not a sniper rifle, it doesn't have the accuracy that, you know, you would expect to have with a sniper rifle, so it was more, special application means larger target anti-material exactly yeah engine blocks and embassy reinforcement any type of vehicle boat engines or you know um, they they employed four of those so my my mom here in california was uh head of security out at the nuclear local nuclear power plant diablo canyon and i think about 2004 2005 um Barrett's and uh, we're going to employ them and I went out there with her one day and explained you know they had one pointed into the hillside you know 600 yards away and the, the location there's access you know they have security measures but there's access via the water there's access via an access road there's um, you, you can fly over it and so they had these 50 cows in placed in a way where um, they weren't very 
effective and couldn't be used effectively. And I went out there and explained to them, look, if you choose this location, you're covering the waterway. These are anti-material weapon systems. You can take out a boat engine with these. Um, you know, you have a six mile long access road. Maybe one of them should be pointed down that access road because you can reach out to more than 1800 yards. That's what the scope dialed up to, but you can shoot further out with those depending on the size of the target and whatnot. But, um, very good, very good weapon system for, for anti-material or location, you know, re reinforcement, um, very good gun. Yeah, easy absolutely. To Easy to clean too, much easier than the Shy Tech. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a fan of the I'm a fan of the Shy Tech. It's just there, you know. It was a lot of a lot of parts, a lot of spaces and crevices, and the the Barrett you could just take apart, hose off, and grease down, and run 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 a couple patches through, and you're good to go. All right. So, at what point did you decide? you were going to join the Marine Corps. Did you know in high school or during, you said you went to college. My original plan was to graduate. So I went into, I went to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo and uh, uh, ran on the track and cross country team there. My plan was to graduate first and then go OCS, and become an officer in the Marine Corps and eventually go on to the FBI or something cool like that. And, um, you know, that plan didn't happen. Uh, I wasn't very good in school. So uh, my grades were suffering a little bit during track season. Uh, my track coach resigned, who was an Olympic team coach. Um, so I was really upset about that my, my sophomore year. So I decided to jump into the military uh, a little bit earlier. Um, I actually went and visited my brother-in-law in Fort Bragg to check out the Army base, went to Pope Air Force Base to check out an Air Force base. And um, I hadn't even, you know, made a decision until I went to a MEPS uh, just to look and see the process and saw all of the poolies and their recruiters coming into this place uh, to get their physicals and whatnot. And I saw... You know, the Army people, you know, the Army recruiters were showing up in sweats and the Air Force people were showing up in civilian uniform or civilian attire. And the Marine dude walks in there with perfect shaved face, fresh haircut, razor sharp creases, looking like a badass. So, excuse my language there. Um, and and I kind of that was what solidified my decision. I, I thought I felt the Marine Corps had a better route for me anyways. Um, I was thinking of going in as a military police officer like my dad was uh, during the Vietnam years. Uh, but I found out quickly that uh, when you're colorblind, you can't be an MP. So I said, sign me up wherever, wherever you need me. So they put me 0300 infantry. Mm. Um, I ended up... Uh, getting meritoriously promoted in boot camp and then went through infantry school. And at the end of infantry school, there was a, a scout sniper unit down the road, um, one four first battalion, fourth Marines, uh, that needed two more to fill up their platoon before they deployed. And they, they didn't want, they were looking for, um, so at the, at the time, 
in order to get into a scout sniper platoon, you had to deploy as an infantry, as an infantryman for, you know, one deployment. And then you come back and that's, a, you have a year in at that point, and then you can take the indoct and see if you can get in. Uh, well, they took a couple of us straight out of uh, infantry school. You know, we hadn't been in the fleet, had no experience as, as a Marine at that point whatsoever and put us through the indoct and, and that's how I ended up in the scout sniper platoon. Two two of us passed the indoct, and uh, they took us into the platoon. We actually took the indoct with a bunch of Marines that had been in for a year and a half, and uh, infantrymen that had qualified to take the indoct, and um, you know came out ahead of them. So it was a pretty uh, pretty wild run, but uh, I was pretty happy with the decision to go in. So at ITS, how did you find out that? One, they had these openings and that you could take the indoc. So at the time, they were allowing infantry school students to um, take the recon indoct, the battalion yeah. recon indoct. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So that's, that's an eight-hour, you know, grueling pro – well, one-day grueling process, running, swimming, ruck runs, all sorts of stuff. But it's yeah. about eight hours long. When I was in, that's what it was. And I was, and I thought after just having run college track and being in the best shape of my life that I was not in shape to do that. And I wanted to go into the infantry for a little while, you know, a deployment, get better at whatever, anything, everything, and then go take the recon indoct. Well, a week before graduation, the instructors came up to two of us in the school, infantry school, and asked us if we wanted to take the scout sniper indoct. And they said, we're not really asking you. You're the cream of the crop of this <laughs> class. We're, we're asking you that you are going to do the indoct. You know, this we're is an opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they said this, this is an opportunity. You don't want to pass up. And, and I thought, well, my first question was, what's the scout sniper indoct? And they said, well, the recon indoct, that's the first day of this. And then you have four more days. And you usually don't sleep, you don't eat, uh, you're constantly going on patrol and doing mock missions. And, you know, if you make it to the end of the week without, without falling apart, um, then, then you're in. And, uh, and I was like, wow, I should have done the recon indoct at that point. But <laughs> 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 so did it. And I'm one of those people that just keeps charging forward. I, you know, I, uh, quit was never in my mind. In fact, helping everybody else get through some of the grueling stuff. Uh, I actually got yelled at for doing that while we were on our indoct, but that's the type of person I am is just push forward. And this is what's on my plate right now. Let's try and, you know, do, do, do my best at it. That's how I ended up there. Oh, wow. Okay. <clears throat> so you went straight to the state platoon? Yeah, I went to the state platoon. They had a um, kind of a crash course for us to get us ready for school. Um, they put us through a month-long in-house school of infantry operations because they wanted uh, the two of us to learn um, what our su our supported unit is does you know how they conduct patrols how they conduct assaults so that we can support them well we we had not been on deployment as an infantryman so we didn't know know that part of it intimately like they did uh 
So they took us for about a month. They just beat the hell out of us and uh, basically ran us through a crash course of how to be a, a squad leader, you know, in an infantry platoon. And then how we su support them as a scout sniper, they put us through a, a prep school for division schools, division scout sniper schools. So we did another month. And uh, at the time, division schools was two months long. So this regimental scout sniper course, anyone in the regiment could come. And uh, that was four weeks long with all of the same material. You covered everything they did in the eight-week course, or I think it was 10 weeks, actually, uh, in the, in the four-week course. So you basically don't sleep or don't eat the entire month. Um, you're learning how to use the M40 and, and all, all the weapon systems, learn how to use all the optics, learn how to land nav and do all the stuffs with all the things, uh, and then they kick you off to school. We had uh, about we had a little bit of time before we went to school. We went to a couple of the SOTG schools, uh, Special Operations Training Group schools. We went through uh, Urban uh, MSPF, Urban Maritime Special Purpose Forces School. We went through Urban Sniper. We went through uh, Reconnaissance and Surveillance School. And in these schools, you're usually going to these schools with the special operations units that you're deploying with. So we deployed with Force Recon. We deployed with the SEAL team out of Coronado. So we went to these schools together. Then, uh, then came division schools. My buddy and I together made it all the way to range week. After range week, you have hell week, field week, and then graduation week. I didn't, I didn't qualify on range week. So my first stint at uh, division scout sniper schools, I failed. I went, I went unqualified and, uh, they, the instructors, I attributed that to my lack of experience. All right. My buddy was, you know, grew up a, a kid hunting in the woods with his dad and stuff. Uh, my first time I had touched a rifle was three months, you know, four months prior to that. So I was a good shot, but I was very inconsistent. And my inconsistency showed uh, on range week. So the instructors highly recommended me to come back to school. Normally, when you, get, when, when you don't pass scout sniper school the first time, retreads are very few. You usually get sent back to the infantry unit. You know? So I got sent back to the state platoon, and they decided to keep me on for the deployment and train me more um, and send me back to school after deployment. And... Unfortunately, our lieutenant had changed during that time, and instead of going back to division schools right after deployment, I had to go back through uh, regimental scout sniper school again and do that four weeks mm -hmm. of hell again, and then I had to retread division scout sniper schools, uh, so I went through there, and I finally passed on the range. I was actually a good shot, and, uh, and uh, then went on as uh, a scout sniper on my second deployment. So, all right, let's that, I mean, wow, that's a, that's a lot of school to go to before <laughs> you actually went to division school there, um, to the scout sniper basic course. So yeah. I, I was like seven weeks shy of four years at Quantico and we mm. didn't, we never had anybody fail qual mm. in the four years I was there. So my question is, and, and this is not a, a pointing fingers or anything. I'm just curious. Were the instructors helpful in trying to get you qualified? 
the second time through the the first time like when you were out on the known distance range and you were <clears throat> shooting would they lay down on the line with you and and coach you and help get you through if you were being inconsistent were they coaching you of course uh yeah during the school yes of course they were Okay. Uh, on range day, on qualification day, they are very hands off. In fact, yeah. Usually, usually when you're at the range training, they're running you ragged up and down the range, and that's part of the training. It's to help build your heart rate, teach you to be able to control your heart rate and whatnot. On qualification day, they do none of that. You're walking silently to the next yard line rather than playing all the games and doing all the push-ups and stuff. So they, they really leave you alone on qual day, which is fine. Um, the first time I went through, I just – you can only miss five out of all of the – you know, you're shooting at 200 yards all the way back to 1,000 yards. You have five – uh, r regular shots on a static target, and then you have five shots, five, maybe three, I can't remember, on a moving target. And then you go back to the next yard line and back to the next yard line all the way out to 1,000. And I had just missed four on my way to the 1,000-yard line and missed that fifth one at the 1,000 yards. I think I did the, almost this. It's just a tough, it's a tough course to qualify on. Um, and I believe that was the first time that they had qualified on a thousand yard range, used a thousand yard range to qualify on, on the West coast. Not sure about Quantico and the East coast. Um, uh, the second time I went through very similar, made it to a thousand yards with one round to spare and, and made it that time instead. So. Okay. It was, it was a rough road to have to go through so many hell weeks and field weeks just to get that damn title. <laughs> I was right. so skinny. I was so skinny. <laughs> <laughs> now, do you do you think the inconsistency was with calling of the wind, or do you think it was just your fundamentals? I mean, where do you think the what did you improve on from class one to class two to qualify? Okay, so my take on that is just rounds down range. I went on deployment. Uh, okay. After I didn't pass school, they put me in a team with the team leader who was like the best shot in the platoon. And, and he was a little bit of a hard ass as well. So he rode me the entire deployment. We were shooting all the time um, and morning and night. And it was just, I, I attribute it to the amount of rounds down range. Once I came back to school, it was, it was much easier. I, I wasn't as um, inconsistent. I wasn't, so, so that led to me being more confident and understanding my, my skills and myself a little better. Nothing really changed about my shooting. Um, you know, I still laid down behind the rifle the same, took my breaths the same, slow trigger pressure the same. Uh, you know, focusing on the reticle the same. I, I was applying everything I had been taught the first time the same way the second time, uh, just more rounds down range. Maybe I was able to feel it a little better or I'd reached that, you know, guru status where you, f you feel it, you know, but I, I attribute it to just the amount of rounds down range, you know. So just a lot more, I'll call it, we'll just say practice. Just more practice. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. When you went to division schools, did you take a rifle from your unit or did they provide you one at division schools? 
We we brought one from our unit. It always makes me wonder um, because we were. I know Quantico uh, takes a lot of crap, but we were lucky in that we had our own optics office and we had all of the 2112s. So those are the armorers who build the guns for those people listening. Patrick knows what I'm saying, but you guys don't. Um, I mean, we had an entire building of 2112. So if we thought we had an issue with a gun, we would literally pull the gun off the line and take it over to the shop, get it reworked. Then we would take it down to the test shed where they tested all M40s for the Marine Corps to make sure it was shooting right. And then before it went back to the student, but we could do that in a day, you know? So we, we were spoiled in that way. So we knew that every gun shot, every unertal functioned properly. So I'm, I wonder sometimes those guns coming from the field that, or from those units, they get used. Our guns got used too, but we knew when something was wrong and, but, and we had the means to get it fixed rapidly Whereas, you know, that glass bedding, you, you beat it up on some stalks a few times. It may not be holding a tight a group as a, a normal M40. So, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. We, uh, it, if we had an issue with the rifle, we had to mail it off and it would take weeks, it, you know, so we were, we were even more careful with those rifles. And, uh, usually if you, ha- I, I, be- I, I seem to remember the school had a couple guns in case you had to have one shipped off to Quantico. Uh, you could do it while you were at school, but then you would be forced to use a school gun um, because the platoon certainly didn't want a gun coming back to the platoon that they had to then send off to Quantico because now you've got your, your one gun down in the unit, whereas if it's a gun at school that went down, at least while you're at school, that gun can get taken care of, and it's not really putting the unit down. Um I'm not sure how they do it now, but I'm pretty I'm I'm pretty sure that the the rifle they gave me to go to school with was the rifle I had um, I eventually had in the teams, and um, when when I was in we had four man teams. Sometimes we took a slack man if we went to the desert. We'd we'd bring a saw gunner um, with a, fi- in a in a five man team, but uh, we had the team leader and the assistant team leader were the long gunners and the their observers or spotters uh, were carrying M16s with, uh, you know, either grenade launchers or, or four power ACOGs or so, something, you know. So what so, year? What years were you in the state platoon? That would be ninety-seven to two thousand. So you said I am I, I am one of those people. I hate the word spotter. Okay. <laughs> uh, I always use observer. Okay. Um, and I noticed you said observer first, then you said spotter second. Is that, why did you say observer first and then spotter? Observer has a little bit more of a role than just a spotter. I don't know why I said both. Uh, I guess I, when I'm speaking to people that don't understand it like we do, I'll, I'll use the terms synonymously. Okay. Um, but yeah, there is, there is definitely a difference. <laughs> Yeah, and when I have that discussion, whenever I hear somebody say spotter, I'm like, look, first off, we're a trained observer. Yeah. That's what we are. Secondly, I said, when you shoot rifle competition, 
the thing you stick in the target to score the hole is a spider. <laughs> <laughs> so True. I am not a, I am not a little thing that you stick in a target to score a hole. Yeah, so very true. I'm a very true. Observer. So it's just one of my pet peeves. I don't know why that has stuck with me, but but it has. Yeah, the way the way we were, the way we were instructed, uh, you know, the spotter is just spotting rounds, whereas an observer is doing much more of a a role. Yeah. So you said your the TL and the ATL were the long gun guys. So were they both hogs primarily? Yes. Uh, in fact, the first deployment I went on, everybody in the in the unit was a hog, except wow. me. <laughs> mm. Well, that's not awkward at all. Uh, that was very awkward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did my best, damn it. Oh, wow. Man. So what... All right. So let's uh, break this down again real quick. So you... So the TL and the ATL were the long gunners. Mm -hmm. You had four men teams. So what were the other two? Um, I assume one would be a radio man. And what, what was the other one? Point man, point man, radio man. Okay. Uh, you, we had, I mean, with such a small team, you have a lot of collateral duties. Um, I was mm -hmm. usually the, I was usually the demolitions person. If we had any C4 to set up or if we had, um, if we were set up in an urban environment where we had to use motion indication devices, you know, those okay. were some of my collateral. Do I was the radio man um, as well. And uh, you know, those, those role, I, you know, the Hearst master as well. It just everybody went to different schools to have different tools to be able to get us through different situations. So uh, sorry, Hearst master, Helleborn rope suspension training master. So that's the person that rigs the helicopters or buildings or natural terrain features to be able to fast rope from, rappel off of, or spy rig from. Um, spy rig would be the rope that dangles from the helicopter that you clip into and the helicopter flies off while you're dangling from that line. Um, so there's a lot of collateral duties, but, but the main would be, you know, team leader was a shooter, assistant team leader was a shooter. And then you have the new guy that's the point man. And then, uh, you know, the, the lesser junior person to the point man is usually the radio person, the radio operator. So, and like I said before, in the, in the desert, we'd take a fifth person with us, a, a saw gunner so that we had, you know, in that wide open area, we had an automatic weapon on us, you know? Right. All right. So I assume then, I mean, point man is point man. That's obvious where he is. So the TL I assume would be second in that mm -hmm. file. Mm -hmm. Third would be radio. So is the ATL then tail and Charlie? Yeah. I believe we usually, uh, we switched off frequently though, you know, point man, Busting some brush, well, depending on the situation, uh, if we were in a wooded area, busting brush usually gets pretty exhausting. So we all trade off doing that. Um, a lot of times the TL needs to have a chat with the radio man. So the, the patrol changes, the order of, of March changes a little bit. It's all really fluid. Um, you know, it's, but, but that is the, the usual order of March, your, your point man, and then your team leader. And then your either radio man or TL can be in either position, bringing up tail end Charlie. Okay. 
was five the biggest you guys ever got? Yes. And that was, uh, let's see, that was our deployment in 2000. And we were doing a lot of desert stuff then. And we were also updating a lot of our standard operating procedures. And a few of us felt kind of naked out there in the desert with two long guns and two BB guns. So um, we, we <laughs> felt like... Uh, <laughs> and 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 a lot of times in the desert that's where we would employ the the barret um it was used as you know extensively throughout the gulf war it's it's a good anti-tank weapon system maybe i wouldn't say anti-tank but it's a, a tank uh debilitator you know it'll it'll debilitate a tank you can take a the tracks off the tank there's vulnerable spots you can make a tank dead in the water with that gun but then you better run um, yeah. <laughs> better get behind something big. <laughs> yeah, um, we we learned it's better to take out the support vehicles because the tanks will eventually break down. So you take out the support vehicles, and and uh, you don't have to worry about it. But uh, yeah, the 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 slack man. We carried a lot of gear in the desert because you're you're usually observing from a little further off. So you're bringing more optics. Uh, you're usually a, much further away from your supported support units so um, you have a lot less support so you're bringing more food more water more gear so you've just got a lot of stuff and a fifth person to divvy some of that stuff out to is a, a you know we found to be very helpful and having the fully automatic weapon was a sound move in the desert like that um, so and i believe teams started playing around after i got out teams started playing around with um, six-man team having six-person teams uh, which makes perfect sense in certain environments. I think two-man teams make better sense in other environments. Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's all situation and mission dependent, really, on how you f formulate that stack. I, I totally agree, um, and I can see where with a six-man team, one, if you're all together, it helps with security. Mm -hmm. Two, if you're getting close to your objective. You know, you can have an objective rally point before you get there, and you can split off into two three-man teams. Absolutely. And really cover a lot of territory. So I can see a lot of benefits. When I was in – the reason I asked about the five was um, when I was in Marine Recon for the five years I was in there, five was average for us. Okay. When we, when we went on the uh, med float, there were five of us, me, an ATL – Basically, I uh, had a, a, a guy who was primary point, guy primary tail, and, and a radio guy. And what I think a lot of people, you hit on, <laughs> uh, what a lot of people don't realize is the amount of weight that that daggone radio adds with the batteries. You got to spread that stuff out. But right as um, Desert Storm was getting ready to go live and they were getting ready to ship people across to the desert, my team that I was on swelled from five to eight. Everybody's team, like they were just dumping privates and PFCs in wow. units and swelling the ranks going over there. So that was interesting at the time. Now, wow. Me personally, it's hard to hide eight people yeah. when, you're, when you're trying to be sneaky. So is, I wasn't a is, fan of that. Yeah, that is the problem with the larger teams is you're a little noisier, a little more visible. Um, mm -hmm. but again, if the situation calls for it, sometimes that's, that's, that's a good option. You know, it's good to have those options. 
<clears throat> now, did your long gunners ever carry uh, 16s or M4s or anything like that in addition to their long gun? We set up in school in, 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 in that way. Uh, we'd always strap the long gun and carry the, you know, the one that had more ammo, ha had a larger magazine. Um, and there were missions where we would go without our long guns, where it was strictly uh, reconna reconnaissance and surveillance. surveillance uh, so yeah. A lot of times we, we wouldn't bring the long guns at all. Um, you know, a lot... It, it was it was really all you know you have this is your array of 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 weapon systems and this is your mission and you're selecting what 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 weapons would be best for that mission you know uh, looking back on your time in the state platoon is there anything you would do differently whether it's you know how you would deploy or or anything we were very good about making those changes. Um, I mean, the one thing I would do differently is I would have not gotten out, you know? <laughs> I think that's a, okay. a, a life mistake I made uh, a long time ago that I'm always kicking myself in the butt for every morning. But um, no, we, we, uh, we made those changes, you know? Um, as an example, before we deployed, we had to do um qualify we had to do qu qualifying missions to qualify as special operations capable we deployed as a mu soc marine expeditionary unit special operations capable well to be to have the designate to have the designation of special operations capable uh you had to do a few of the 52 different uh special operations missions uh jointly with other special operation operators so our bread and butter missions were the VBSS, the vessel board search and seizures, where you're taking over a ship suspected of, you know, whatever, trafficking drugs or kids or weapons or whatever. Um, and, you know, you'd have the SEALs attack part of the ship and the Marines would come in and attack another part of the ship and one would take the aft steering and the other group would take the bridge and in the meantime you have a shoulder ship with a sniper platform and you have a, a huey circling the ship with a sniper platform well there were some standard operating procedures that were old antiquated i'd say mm -hmm. and uh you know we took note of that when we were working up these missions and you know explained to the musoc commander there's a way we could be doing this differently there's a way we could be doing it better and you know they gave us the go-ahead to go ahead and change the standard operating procedures as long as we briefed everybody in the room what we'd be doing differently you know for for example on on those specific miss missions the 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 takeover ship was broken up into three phases and you've got seals running on one end and marines running on the other end and they're all meeting in the middle basically uh, we're not allowed to shoot in the same phase that those operators are operating in. We have to shoot a phase in front of them. Uh, and, I mean, the shoulder ship, the sniper platform on the shoulder ship, and the sniper platform in the Huey. And I thought that was BS. You know, if somebody's standing right around the corner of the bulkhead from you and you're about to walk past them and I see that they're, they've got the advantage on you and, and can take you out as you walk past, I'm going to take them out. I'm not going to sit there and watch that happen. 
you know. So I briefed that to the MUSOC commander, the SEAL platoon. I said, we're doing this differently. This is how we've always briefed it, that we're shooting one phase line in front of you. We're not doing that anymore. We're professionals. We're, we're scout snipers. We can hit our targets. Trust us. If I see someone right around the corner from you, I'm taking the shot. I'm not letting you get killed, you know, and, and there were a couple other things uh, that needed to be worked on that, that Pat, we, yes. Patrick, how did they react to that? How did they accept, were they good with that? Oh, yes. Um, okay. The, the pilots were on board with it. Every, everybody was on board with it because we had, we had identified a, a, a weakness. We had identified somewhere where we could be stronger and didn't understand the reasoning for why it needed to be the way it was. And we questioned that. And instead of, uh, you know, instead of just bitching about something, we came up with a problem and a solution. Here's the problem. Here's the solution. Rather than just complaining about the way things are, you know, right. yeah. So it was just those, anything like that. We, we made changes. Um, some big changes happening now, though, that uh, are blowing, blowing my mind. Yeah. So let's talk about, oh, uh, it was Douglas MacArthur who wanted to invade China. And Truman was like, no. Yeah. <laughs> but. Okay. How um, we couldn't, how between the two of us couldn't remember, couldn't think of that name. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> Holy cow. It was killing me. I can see him, too. I could even yeah. see the video that they show of him walking back into the Philippines after we took control of it during World War II yeah. when we pushed the Japanese out of there. So, I, But I could not remember his name to save my life. Um, <laughs> so uh, what Patrick was just alluding to is the fact that the Marine Corps, in their infinite wisdom, has decided once again to end the formal scout sniper program within the Marine Corps starting October one. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not go ahead. That's some, some pretty major news. <clears throat> yeah. Especially considering, look, I, I didn't agree with the fact that they got rid of tanks. Cause I'm like, I don't know that that's a smart thing to do. Yeah. Um, I mean, we've always been renowned for having everything we need as an invading force. We have our own air, our own, you know, well, we use the, the Navy, you know, provides us movement and landing craft. Mm -hmm. But other than that, I mean, we have artillery, we have tanks, we have planes, we have helicopters. We have everything else we need to support ourselves. They've taken away the tanks. Now they've taken away one of the cheapest forms of battlefield control that you could ever imagine and the yeah. part that blows my mind is they disbanded snipers after world war ii then after korea finally at the end of the vietnam war they were like we are tired of this nonsense so we're going to maintain the program we're going to create a formalized program and now Oh, my, not quite 50 years later, they are disbanding it. Yeah, again, yet again. I think this time, the, the major thing this time, you know, that community has worked to develop themselves to be a permanent part of the landscape with the schools, um, the advanced schools, 
they are integrated and to just pull something like that out as you said as you said it's a very effective very efficient uh weapon system um you know it just makes no sense and my first public post about this was here we go again you know this 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 has happened before and the next ground conflict we're in it's they're going to be brought back into the fold and the schools are going to have to open up and it's instead of uh continuing this tradition instead of keeping this uh you know effective and efficient weapon system sharp and well oiled uh, you're 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 not even putting it back on the shelf. You're just tossing it out, and so all the infrastructure set up to produce that is is going away now as well, and um, just makes no sense. I don't understand. It's uh there are other things in the military that um, are much more costly that could be, you know, if this is a budget thing uh, that that could be stood down. You know, I just as as important and as iconic as it is, I just I, I question why the Marine Corps has a Marine Corps band, but now no longer a scout a, a scout sniper platoons that support the infantry battalions. You know, we, we, I, I don't that baffles me. Yeah, and war fighting is the mission, not music playing. So yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and, I, you know, a couple of things recently. One, the fact that it's come up that, you know, twice now the Pentagon has been missing like uh, $4 trillion. Uh, un unaccountable. Like they don't know where the money went. And yeah. then um, Chris Beck, he's the Navy SEAL that was transitioning to be a female but did not. And he... I listened to his interview on the Sean Ryan podcast and because he's dealt with some programs up at the Pentagon, he said in 24 hours, he could save a quarter of the budget at the Pentagon. He said, there's so much double dipping up there mm -hmm. that 25% of the budget alone could be cut just because of the double dipping. And I bring this up because look, the, the, the real cost to train snipers and shoot that ammo is not even a drop in the bucket in comparison to everything else the Pentagon spends money on. Yeah, and That's the one thing the Marine Corps has decided to take away, you know, a huge asset to the battalion commander of an infantry unit, a regimental commander, whomever you want to put there, as well as, like you were just saying too, all the work that you do with other commands other military groups, you know, just doesn't make any, I'm glad that the reconnaissance units and MARSOC is um, going to keep their stuff, but, or, you know, continue it on, but it's, it's just sad that the, the infantry battalion is losing a huge asset. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it seems like that's it. It's, it's just the infantry battalion. There's still going to be, um, uh, Marsoc scout snipers. I, I don't, I mean, I, I think they're just going with in the infantry units, they're just going with, uh, de the, the, the title designated marksman. They're keeping the long guns and giving them to 
you know, these kids that have no idea how to use them. I, I think they're putting going to put them through some two or three week designated marksman course. Um, they're still going to have scouts and train people up on scout stuff. So what what are we doing here? Like, why are we doing this? You're going to have you're going to have less trained, less effective uh, Marines using that weapon system. It's not going to provide the same results. You know, I don't what are we doing here? I don't understand. I, I don't either. I think it was 92. I went to San Francisco, the little naval base there. Um, I'm trying to remember fast company. I think they had a fast company there yeah. and they had a designated marksman course. So I went out there and, and, uh, I don't remember. I think it was just a week long period of instruction I did for those guys. But my, my concern is, okay, you have a designated marksman program, but where is there a dedicated budget for it? How are you going to keep up these guns? What about the scopes? Is there going to be any program at all to look into future development of better weapon systems, better optics? Because I feel like without that dedicated scout sniper program, all of that's going away too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, all, all the traditions, the professionalism, the... Uh, you know, the ability for uh, a state platoon commander to stand up in front of a battalion commander and explain how the, the state platoon could support that battalion commander in their mission. Like that battalion commander no longer has that, um, you know. So I don't know. I, my prediction is that this is going to this is going to not be. I just, I think history's repeating itself here. That's all. I think I think I think they're making a big mistake, and they're going to realize that, and uh, we'll have we'll have them back in the fold. I think at, at a minimum, if they're going to c continue to implement uh, or employ scout snipers through MARSOC, there still needs to be a school. You know, there still needs to be a scout sniper school. But if if you're not going to have scout snipers quote unquote uh, running through marsoc then you know maybe they're also making the transition there to whoever's in marsoc can go to a designated marksman school and that will be the the sniper of the team or whatever um, but it's still it's that's half the skill set you know the the skill set is uh, sorry, that's a third of the skill set. The, the, the skill set is, you know, summed up in the acronym EPD, Enhanced Surveillance, Precision Rifle Fire, and Direction of Supporting Arms. A designated marksman isn't going to do all that, doesn't do all that. They do one-third of that. A scout does one-third of that. A forward observer does one-third of that. A Marine Scout Sniper does all of that, you know, and we're just don't need that person anymore. So I, I have a feeling that you know, this will be dialed back quite a bit. Yeah, and and I mean, just from what I've read and the chatter I've been hearing, it seems like the MARSOC sniper school, the reconnaissance school, um, sniper school, hmm. I guess they're taking out the stuff that they're learning in their other schools. So it's going to be primarily a shooting school 
I'm not sure what all else will be added to that. I don't know if, you know, stalking will be in there or, uh, cause it sounds like they're taking out like the land navigation and stuff like that, which I get. I understand if you're doing your own specialized school, there's, you don't need to duplicate efforts. If yeah. you've already been taught those skills and you don't need to teach them again, you know, so I, I totally get that. I don't, I, I'm not arguing that at all, but it does mean though, that given enough time, they're almost going to have to start from scratch if they start this back up again. Yeah, exactly. Just like they did before. Yeah. Nuts. Yeah. Have you been hearing anything out there on the West Coast, anything more about it, or is that all you've heard as well? Our, our platoon has got a, an email chain going, and everybody's chiming in on it. Most of, most of those guys uh, ended up going Army, Army Special Forces after they got out. Some, a few went to Air Force PJs and so on and so forth. So we're just, uh, we had our 20-year reunion just a couple years ago. And, uh, so we're all still in touch on an email chain. Just, it's, uh, nothing kind, n n nothing kind is being said about this. That's for sure. In fact, our, our former, our former captain, our, our platoon commander is a part of the email chain. He's the one usually, uh, really good about getting us all together. And, and, uh, he's even, uh, a little perturbed about this. It's just, there's <laughs> a good word. Yeah, it's got us all a little sh shaking our heads a little bit. And, you know, I mean, we're both members of a private Facebook group as well. But uh, mm -hmm. it's interesting that one of the first comments that came up was, you know, the army will take you. So, <laughs> it, it, And I ran into um, when I got out, uh, it was like five years later, but I ran into a guy who was uh, ex-Special Forces former and you know in our private conversations he's like man the most professional people i ever worked with were marine scout snipers he's yeah like, they, they were always serious there was you know when now obviously he he didn't mean when they were off duty but you know when it came down to mission planning and doing all of that he's like man they were dead serious they were ready to go yeah like, that's that's how they are that's how we are the they hammer that into you at school, you know, uh, they, when it comes time to plan and prep and brief your missions in school, you know, you're, you're, you're doing that in front of the instructors as if, and, and, they're, and they're trying to create a situation where, as if you were doing that in front of, you know, the big wigs, the, the brass on their collars, the generals and the colonels and the MUSOC commanders, um, because you can't be, you know, shy or timid or not confident at all when you're in a room full of you know special operators like seals and force recon platoons and you're about to do a special operations mission that's serious business and they they definitely instill that into you in the schools you know with these schools that are now getting closed down so that's that's very unfortunate you know yeah, to the the, the, the it wasn't just shooting and it, was, it wasn't just shooting and, and crawling around in the dirt in those schools. They taught you how to be a professional. They taught you how to, how to speak professionally and tactfully. They taught you how to disagree and argue your point in front of a general, you know, uh, and, and that, that goes a, a long way 
to helping with the maturity level of Marines that are involved in some of these missions, I believe. You know, that's just a very small aspect of this, but you're losing that, that, that air of professionalism that you were just talking about. For sure. Until next time. Don't be a little bitch. Yeah.